Welcome to Composers in a Jukebox, a podcast that brings together a special breed of musicians in a conversation about their craft. Join us on today's episode as we scratch our heads over four questions about film scoring. Hello everyone, welcome to Composers in a Jukebox, episode two. My name's Darren. I'm a composer for uh, the stage and the screen, which means I write both concert music and film music, more or less at the same time <laughs> for most of my life. Hey, I'm Luke. Similar to Darren, I do concert music and film music. And uh, more specifically, I also wanted to mention I do a lot of art installation music too. <laughs> That's a slight variation. <laughs> Your standard yes. <laughs> I wanted to mix it up. Just just for those people who are listening, um, we've actually recorded this introduction twice today. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, Luke has a tendency to um, say everything word for word, his introduction. Well, no, yes. nothing wrong but with it. Nothing wrong with it. <laughs> inject some chaos into this. <laughs> okay, my turn. Um, hi, guys. I'm Jolene. I am currently teaching and doing video game music. But yeah, I usually write film music, um, occasionally concert stuff, but that's me. Yeah, we're basically three nerds around this table. Um, Nothing wrong with us. <laughs> definitely nerds, yeah. So what we're going to do today is uh, something that's quite different from whatever we've done before. We will start off with a list of questions. So it's like, you know, 76 vote questions, uh, which I will toss on the table, literally. <laughs> um, and we'll just, you know, talk our way through that. Right. Are you guys ready? We shall begin. Brace yourselves, because the first question is, name one film that inspired you to become a composer or a musician. Okay, I can start with this. Like we said, we already recorded the first three minutes of this, and I started last time, so I'll do it again. Um, so the f- one film that really inspired me to want to be a film composer, I think I was already on the path to being a film composer before this film, but um, was the film Moonlight, which many people know from the whole Oscars controversy. It ended up winning Best Picture, I believe. Um, And it's basically a sort of heightened coming-of-age story about a kid in Miami who grows up and um, has a mother who's a drug addict, and he also eventually discovers that he's gay and in many ways doesn't fit in with the places um, and the people that are around him because there is some degree of homophobia and things like that. Um, And, you know, he kind of learns to accept himself eventually. That's kind of, spoilers, the journey of the movie. Um, But in terms of musically, there's some really interesting things in it. In terms of, there's a lot of what the composer Nicholas Bertel talked about of chopping and screwing uh, things in the orchestra which chopped and screwed music is a variation of hip hop that was very popular at the time that this film takes place and in Miami and involves slowing and pitching down things. And so there are elements of the score that were like that. For instance, there's actually um, the big, the kind of big cue um, that people know about uh, from the film is, um, I believe it's called in the middle of the world. And it's this big, uh, violin solo against kind of a string orchestra uh, tremoloing and things like that and there's actually points where 
it's very subtle, but where the violin actually gets pitched lower than the low open G in it. So it's almost, it's, it's one of the instances where it's quite noticeable in other elements of the score that they're pitching things down, but there it's less noticeable. Um, and it creates this really cool effect where you can have these arpeggios that are at an even greater range than a violin can actually play. Yeah. So that that particular cue, especially the way it worked to the film, um, the particular scene involves Mahershala Ali, the actor who plays um, a drug dealer who kind of takes the kid in, um, holding him over the water and teaching him how to swim. And the music really, instead of making it more of a uh, you know standard event and growing up, makes it kind of this cataclysmic event because the music is so dramatic, um, kind of representing that this is the first time this kid really feels like he has a father figure in his life. So, and that that's somewhere where I really noticed the music doing something with the story, and that's kind of set some things off for me. Definitely. What about you, Jolene? Hmm. It took me a while to actually decide to become a film composer. I was technically on the path of pop, mu pop musician kind of thing. That's what I usually do. The film that actually inspired me to actually make music, not entirely film composition, is actually Ghibli Studio Films. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a sucker for cartoons, but Ghibli, Ghibli, uh, Ghibli Studios films, they are so meaningful. All of them have actually a really good story behind them, and the music is just beautiful. Joey Seishi. Yeah. And, and he has such a range, like, you know, he yeah. can go, like really light, really intimate, like with the with some of the spirited away piano cues. Yes. Um, One Summer's Day, uh, the Sixth Station. And at the same time, he has that capacity to go um, very extreme and broad and orchestral, like yeah. almost Stravinskyan. Yeah. Um, are you are either of you familiar with, uh, I hope we don't butcher the name, but Nausicaa Valley of the Wind? It's the first oh, yes, thing yes, he ever yes. did. Yes. It's my favorite score that he has. It's very orchestral. Very cool. Yeah. I, I watched the film uh, quite recently, actually. <laughs> uh, because I was, well, I only started, I think I started with um, Spirited Away mm. and then House Moving Castle. And then recently uh, watching back his older films, which... Yeah. It's so good. The, the cues are so your, good. Just have curiosity because we're kind of spinning off from this question. What's your favorite Ghibli film? Definitely Spirited Away. Spirited, Spirited Away. Spirited Away. I, would say, <laughs> I would say it would have to be Spirited Away too, but just to give a kind of alternate answer, I also really love Kiki's Delivery Service. Oh, that's oh. really cute. That it's is a great. cute film. It, it's, it's so, um, like, it's, it's like this great slice of life film. It just reminds you sometimes that films don't need to be epic, saving the world type movies to be impactful. That's the thing about Ghibli Studio films. I think most of them are slice of life and it's, it's really meaningful. It doesn't have to be like a hero yeah. story arc. But And I think like yeah. with music specifically, what's interesting about Ghibli, uh, well, the music of Ghibli is that, you know, even in the orchestral cues, they don't tend to sound like um, Hollywood scores in their performance because obviously they recorded Japanese orchestras. Yeah. And the sound's completely different. It's, um, you know, I think they tend to go for, like, you know, sound that's very clean, generally. Um, and they just drop, like, you know, the, the big, loud, boomy, brassy characters. Albeit, you know, you don't have as much of the, the ebb and flow or um, that sort of coloristic expressiveness as you do in, um, like, 
London orchestras or yeah. American orchestras, but you get like really clean sounds, and that's a whole other layer of expression altogether. Like delicate, it's delicate. Yeah, very delicate, very clean. So I think, like as a viewer, um, like for all three of us who are, you know, we're mostly uh, familiar with like Hollywood movies or you know it, films of this part of the world. It's quite a refreshing uh, palette yeah. whenever I listen to a Ghibli score. It is, but to answer back your question, how I started film scoring is actually from my uh, assignment back in Taiwan that they asked us to rescore stuff. That's how I actually got into film scoring, <laughs> and I was kind of long with it until I get to the answer. But yeah, that's how it how I started. Um, so for me, uh, there were sort of two films actually that um, really got me uh, drawn into this world. The first is the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Ooh. It's a David oh, Fincher film. Great. F- I was literally listening. Sorry to interrupt you, but I was listening to one of those cues, the the sun, sunrise on lake. Yes. Yeah. So my mom loves that cue. She listens to it all. My mom's a big fan of film music in general. Yeah. And she uh, she actually sent me that last night. Oh, last night. Ooh, yeah. Well, all good time. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I listened to it, but I was asking. It's funny. I was, I was writing this thing for string orchestra it may not happen now but like i was asking my mom because my mom really likes weirdly string orchestra pieces for that you know film scores with string orchestra pieces and i was actually asking her it's like mom do you can you send over some of the string orchestra stuff you like because i was just like blanking on some things she sent, <laughs> yeah. she sent that. you've got a great mom yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah but i mean what i like about that score is that it's so like you know it's very subtle all of it is sort of within that world, but it goes through, like, you know, it, it pulls you through a whole range of styles from, like, you know, Sunrise, that's very much pentatonic um, French impressionist kind of cue. Um, there are also ragtime cues um, and all sorts of other, you know, it's it's a whole, like, it's such a colourful world. Um, but basically, it's a film that came out in, like, 2007, I think, um, quite a few years ago. And I remember... Um, having the DVD of that film. And the great thing about having DVDs is that you get access to a a palette of behind-the-scenes footage that you'll never be able to find online. Some of that. I've never found this particular one, but there was a documentary um, on Alexander's scoring process um, where he walks... Like, it's a 45-minute long documentary where he walks the viewer through the spotting sessions, the scoring sessions, and everything... Um, that follows. And when I was a kid in 2007, um, watching that DVD, that documentary was on loop. Like I memorized it word (laughs) for word, the interviews, everything. Like he talks about, like Alexander's just someone with like, you know, the, he has so many really cool metaphors. Like he um, was talking about how uh, film music has sort of two uh, aspects there's function there's fiction and the ideal film score is one that balances both function and fiction of which he was trying to do with um, Benjamin Button so you know I, I was really fascinated by the world of film scoring because of that documentary you know it's it's really funny that you bring up like DVDs and things like that it's weird I'm gonna feel like an old man even though I guess I'm not relatively not that old but one of the things that I kind of miss about like physical media is that you're re- sometimes you're really forced to sit with things, if that made sense. And you can really build a relationship with certain things. Like I remember, man, I, I can remember so many of the type of music my parents would play on CDs in the car picking me up for school. 
Like I can still remember like all the words to all of those songs. And while now it's great, I can listen to tons of different music, but it's weird. The things that are most burned in my brain are things I didn't even consciously choose to listen to. But like now I have this like emotional connection with them. So it's, it's kind of, it's quite an interesting thing that I think maybe if you were growing up more today, maybe you wouldn't quite have that same relationship with those films. Yeah. I mean, why do you think I love vinyl so much? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it forces you to sit and listen. And what I like to do with it is because, you know, I mean, if you're familiar with how vinyls work, um, basically they are kind of like they're discs and vinyl is the material and all the music engraved into the vinyls. Um, and so actually in doing that to change from one track to the next is really difficult. Like you have to aim the needle to the right point and like... 80% of the time, you don't get the right point. You might as well just listen to the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, you may as well just listen to the whole thing. And I think that it in itself is an experience. I'm a big believer, this sounds kind of pretentious, in listening to albums all the way through. I, I, I really think you gain... I don't think you even really get the impression of most albums until you listen to it all the way through more than once. Yeah, I think so too. To, to me, it's... I used to be a big jump around person, and then... There were certain albums I just realized. I think actually it was really early on. It was the Beatles album, some of them, because my dad's a big Beatles fan, where I realized I was like, oh, th this is very different if you listen to it all the way through. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah. Even f like film score albums as well, to bring it back to film scoring, is I, I would jump around on tracks and things like that. And you don't get, because films, a lot of film music albums are planned in a certain way where you can actually hear the thematic kind of development. It really, <laughs> apologies, it really doesn't we'll, we'll chop that out. <laughs> work um, if you don't listen to the whole thing. Yeah. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and I, I have a vinyl player as well. I don't have it here, but I, I, I'm also a fan of that whole area. Anyway, I think it might be uh, about a good time to have a look at some of the other questions <laughs> on this list. Um, going back to film scoring, uh, the next question, I believe most of us have been asked this multiple times, but I'm just really curious to hear what your best experience scoring a film was. It's funny, I actually get asked what my worst experience is far more than <laughs> I'm not sure I'm turning this on its head. We're being kind. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever been asked what the best experience I've had mm. scoring a film is. Um, I want to think about it a bit. Sure. I mean, I, I've got one. Um, it's a film that I did um, almost exactly a year ago, actually slightly more than a year ago. Um, that's called Mars. And uh, I worked with a director. Um, her name's Hannah, Hannah Beach. Um, she was a I think she then was a student at Met Film, but has since graduated. Um, and this was her first sort of, you know, major short film. What was great about this process was, firstly, she's a director who has a really strong vision of what she wanted. Um, and at the same time, sufficient trust in her collaborators in that she was able to, you know, give whether it's a composer or an editor or a cast member, enough room um, to express themselves and to, you know, um, share their own creative inputs. So that was really nice. Like, I think I was having a conversation with a friend recently about um, collaborators and what sort of collaborators are the best and the worst. Uh, and this is for, this is for all the directors out there. 
<laughs> um, we were basically talking about how there are two different sides to the spectrum. Um, on one end of the spectrum, there are directors who um, have a really strong vision and who, you know, um, who are very clear about what they want. Um, and this is the sort of director that Hannah is. Like, she, she really knows what she wants. Um, she gives you room, but if anything doesn't quite go along the axis, you know, you'll be brought back and there will always be a reason behind things. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are directors who sort of, you know, give you full liberty to do whatever you want. And um, anything that you send them will be perfect. This is great. I'm buying it. Let's, you know, sign this off. Um, I think and that's both, a certain one. Yeah, both of these kinds of, you know, at these two ends of the spectrum, they're lovely to work with. Like, those honestly are, like, I would kill to work with directors like that. The worst kind of directors are those that are in the middle, who I don't know what they want. I completely agree with yep, you. Yeah, yep. who I either don't know what they want those. or don't trust their collaborators. And I have had experience working with directors like this before. No names, but I'm not you know. gonna name anybody. I would genuinely yeah. rather work with somebody who's militant in what they want mm. than somebody who's, you know, is pretends to be kind of, or just doesn't know, but also is very particular, if that makes sense. Because just in a, and this isn't because I don't think it's because of anything with composers' ego necessarily. It's just a time constraint thing of when somebody doesn't know what they want and they're also very particular about things, you have to do so many more drafts. And one of the things with composers is we're paid um, for the project. So depending on what the project is, sometimes you can spend much more time working on something. just because of the collaboration with the director. And it's not that we're not happy to do everything that we can to make the film good. It's that at a certain point, it becomes that if we keep having to do revisions over and over again, the revisions have to be in shorter and shorter time periods. And either your quality of life suffers as a composer or the music's going to suffer. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, you're like, we're working with people and people are working with us and people do get bored. (laughs) of their music or their film so you know um i think there was a composer that we spoke to recently uh ben bartlett yeah who scored walking with dinosaurs and one really interesting thing that he told us was um so he's been working on am i allowed to say this on a podcast anyway he's working on a project um of which um there is an internal agreement of a limit as to the number of versions that can be um, sent and reviewed. So the number of passes, and that tends to be the number two. Yeah, and and the thing that's cool about that or interesting about that is because it really has everything to do with time constraints for that, where it's just kind of like, and I, I think I actually asked him how he approached negotiating that. And he said he really just put it as a matter of fact thing where he just said, look, I can only do and finish this project or, or this set of things to score if I only have to do two revisions. Otherwise, it's just not possible. And there is, there is a limit to what's possible. And I think one of the things with collaborating with directors is is sometimes people don't exactly understand how long it takes us to write music one way or the other. 
Um, because And I totally get that, too. So I, I actually think one of the really important things when you're working with directors, especially ones that aren't as experienced, is you kind of have to make them aware of how long things take you. Yep. Of like, for instance, things like, oh, like I've recut the film. Can you just move around the hit points? <laughs> that, that can actually take longer than writing the whole cue. Yeah, because it, it affects not just, you know, I mean, for... For them, it's like, yeah, you know, just adding a few frames, it's not going to make much of a difference. I mean, it's not it a seems. jigsaw puzzle. But for us, it's about changing tempo, changing rhythms, changing meters, changing yes. sync points. And that's not easy to manage on a musical yeah, level. Yeah, I've actually had moments where I was debating that and I found out, given what I wrote, it was so difficult that I just rewrote it. Yeah. yeah. And... So, so that's one of those things. And the other thing, too, is it, sometimes it can vary. Sometimes musically, say something's at a certain tempo and they move the cut over. Maybe you, you just add a couple bars and it already works. I've had situations like that. And then there's other situations where it's just a mess. Yeah. So I think limiting the amount of revisions can be a really helpful tool. Yep. To, yeah. to, and, and I think it's not just for us. I think it actually makes the film better. And yeah. The music and better. it's great for the filmmakers as well, in that it forces them to really think about everything when they, you know, when, when they review your material and not like, you know, think about a few ideas now and then a week later, oh, by the way, actually, what if we, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. I mean, we have, I think all of us had the ex experience of the director just simply giving you, oh, here's the draft version. I'm going to give you the, uh, picture lock version in a few weeks that are rather like could you just give me the picture lock you know it, I, I, I don't want to do this twice you know we don't want to waste time if we want to do a recording we could do it fast yeah. rather than you, you want me to write twice what, yeah what, what I would always try to say when um, uh, directors give me draft versions is I'll like write a suite maybe or I'll write some general thing anything that's not and sometimes things are locked but they're not actually locked yeah. <laughs> Any, anything that's yeah. not locked I, I don't think it's worth actually scoring it to picture because inevitably you're you see you can totally write the suites and get the idea of what the film is just by seeing the film for yep. a first try but I think it's I think the thing is we all, us and the directors all have the same goal, which is make the film and the music as good as possible. And I think when you have things like having a consistent locked picture and having a more concrete amount of revisions, I actually think you make the picture better and you make everyone's lives easier because you're, it's just more organized. Yeah. yeah. Um, we kind of transitioned to talking about bad experiences. <laughs> I knew, I, 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 knew I knew it would happen. That's why. Yeah, I thought I thought this would be an optimistic conversation, but I'm gonna be honest, I'm not in a real optimistic place in my day. So <laughs> maybe this is my fault. Um, I, I can talk about some positive. Yeah, sure. Go for it. So I, honestly, I I would say again, pretty much most of the experiences I've had with directors have been really positive. Um, and by the way, this is, I'm going to give kind of a political answer. If me picking out these two is not to say other collaborations I've done haven't been good. Uh, these two just kind of stick out to me. So one is a short film earlier in my career and one is a feature film later. And I think they're both kind of good to talk about briefly because they're quite different. So one was this film, Juliet, that was done 
by the AFI, which is the American Film Institute. Most people probably know them more for their award show than their school, but they are a really great film school. Um, and what, and I just want to shout them out and this director, Ira, who I worked with, because it is by far the best student film experience I've ever worked on. And, and to be honest, it's not even close. Um, because one, this, I mean, there's some programs just don't have the resources. They actually, they paid me a decent amount for this. And, and the, the school actually had a budget for music composers. Yeah. B the reason being, and I think this is a really great thing that they could do is that the whole idea is that when you're producing things, you want to do them as if they would be professional. And in a real professional environment, if you want to get a, a skilled composer, you have to pay them. To, to, to be honest. Um, and so what happens is, and the other reason is the AFI doesn't have a music school attached to it. Mm -hmm. So they're always getting outside composers. So it makes sense for them to pay people outside. Okay. So this was paid like actually for a short, like a, I, a decent amount, like a real like appropriate amount for the amount of music it was. And also the director and the producer were really educated on how music works. They, their teachers at the school actually taught them how, I think they probably had some film composers guest lecture and tell them about film composition. So they understood things like, for instance, they asked me if I wanted to hear the temp at first, which I'm not as big. Some people hate temp. I, I don't necessarily hate temp. One thing I think, I can't remember which composer that spoke at our school said this, but that it's always good to hear it at least once without the temp or, or to say, hey, can we just listen to it without the temp? Um, maybe yeah. that's Benjamin again. I believe it was. But actually for me, um, I've got a slight, like a kind of love-hate relationship with temp. Um, what I don't like about it is how it sets an impression, um, mm -hmm. both on yourself and the filmmakers. But what I like about it is that it's the best way to get into the minds of the directors. That's true. If you know how to use the temp. I, to I actually agree with you. Yeah, and um, I was, you know, I, I was again chatting with a composer um, the other day and uh, we were talking about how to deal with temp and the one thing he, well, he, he works in mostly documentaries and stuff. Um, but the one thing he mentioned was that, okay, the, the best way to win the director on your side is um, to first get the tempo of the temp and to second get the key mm. yeah because the the tempo is functional i mean it you know it sets the pace and it sets the momentum for the scene the key is psychological if the director or if someone who's non-musical listens to a piece um that's in the same listens to a cue that you've written in the same key as the temp he or she would be like yeah it's exactly what I was looking for. It's quite similar, and they may not even know why, but it's because That's of the true. key. I mean, in a way, it's also an easier way for directors to tell us what they need because there's so many examples of you know not 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 to you know say that it's bad, but sometimes directors have no idea how to communicate in music because they they themselves are not professionals in the music like us. Yeah. So you know what I think is really helpful as well is. Even if they're not giving you, or if you don't like temp, I, I think for me, this is like pretty important on any project. I at least want them to send me a playlist of music that they think could fit for the film like or that inspired, like a mood board. I, because for me, I, I think it's, to be honest, I think it's very rare 
that you get a director who says, I'm totally open to, to, to whatever. And they're actually totally open. And, and to be honest, just giving kind of my opinion, this might be kind of a strong opinion. I think as a director, you really should have an idea of what type of music because you're overseeing everything and music is a part of that. So you should have some, it doesn't mean you have to have everything sorted out, but for instance, like, is this score gonna have live musicians? Is it a, a score with synths? Is it, you know, what's the tonality of it? Is it, you know, cause like, say you're doing a horror film, there's horror films that are much more atonal. And then there's horror films that are very tonal synth scores. Yeah. So there's so many different directions you can go. Sometimes I think we need an initial idea of where we're going. Mm. Yes, Yeah. that's true. Definitely. Actually, now that we're talking about um, working with directors and starting on the scoring process, my next question would then be, what's the first thing you do when you sit down to write a score? I'm gonna let Jolene answer. <laughs> we're taking turns. <laughs> Besides panic, that's usually what I do first. This, yeah, I think you aren't the only one. Yeah. <laughs> well, for me, um, when I get something to do, like like for example, one of the good experience that I did was Kung Fu Grandma, uh, which was <laughs> a really fun film. Not gonna lie, it's still gonna gonna be a fun film. It was a fun film. So what I did with that film, I kind of mess around with the piano. That's what I did. Just sit down, mess around with my MIDI keyboard and then thinking of a theme that that would help with the film. Like in this case, they kind of wanted like Kung Fu Panda style <laughs> kind of thing. So I was thinking of like a good melody or a good um, like a good theme for the, the grandma. I say theme too many times. So, but basically... No, yeah, it's definitely valid. I think you're... Yeah. Like, you can sense that in your music. Like, you're you're a very thematic composer where, you know, you start off with something that expands. Yeah, I, I mean, that's an approach that's kind of timeless and classic and just works. I don't it's, think... It's yeah. just my favourite. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Like, that's a... that That's probably the most... Um, successfully used approach to scoring yeah, film. for sure. It's like, you know, I mean, we talk about light motifs and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. Very effective. But actually, the one thing that I've been thinking about um, in recent months is um, the effectiveness of light motifs to a first-time viewer. Mm. Because, you know, light motifs and stuff like that, they're, they're rather intellectual concepts. Like, you kind of have to, firstly, identify the character in the film Second, identify the light motif, which most people just don't really listen yeah, to. They, because they, they think about, like, you know, viewers naturally, especially if you're first time, there's so much to take in the film, you're thinking about the music as a texture. The, um, so you have to identify. And then you, the third step is to make the connection between a light motif and the character. And then the fourth step is to trace the development. So it is a really intellectual process. Darren, I totally agree with you. I was actually, I was writing kind of a research paper, and one of the things I noticed is like the score for the social network, right? It does have a theme in it, but the thing that a lot of specifically critics pointed out wasn't the theme, it was the texture. Where they talk about it's, it's this cue hand covers bruise where it, it, we're probably all sick of it because it gets tempted so much. But <laughs> it's kind of this combination of, of uh, string tremolo with electronics and, and it's quite gritty. And then there's a, this uh, really minimal piano melody that comes off that's kind of sad sounding. Every one of them, these critics, pointed out the dichotomy between the two and not just pointed out, pointed out how they think it represents the character of Mark Zuckerberg. 
what, none of them mentioned anything about musical content. And I realized that I think part of the reason a lot of these modern film scoring approaches are becoming so popular is it's actually more immediate to people in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I, th I think texture, that's a really good point. I think actually people pick up on texture yeah. before yeah. they even pick up on themes. Yeah. Yeah, but no, I mean, having said that, like, you know, constructing themes are definitely a valid musical approach because, yeah. you know, if anything, it gives you as a composer runway to write the film. Because, yeah, because otherwise you'll have to think about new materials for each scene. And it, it, makes, the, uh, it makes the music memorable as well. Because, like, you know, when we talk about themes, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, um, themes relate to melody or melodic fragments. And if anything, melody equates to presence in a film. Yeah, ab absolutely. And the things kind of change around yeah. those um, th those parameters of classic thing many film composers and concert composers do is change the harmony under a melody, change the texture, change yeah. the orchestration. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, it also ties into classical development, yeah. like classical uh, thematic development as well. Absolutely. Right, so one last question for today. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're going to love this. Oh, God. How do you judge if a work is finished? And do you enjoy your completed works? Darren, <laughs> uh, why? I know the answer to the second question is no. Um, well, I'll say this though, because I want to pay respect to the people that play my works. Yeah. I, enjoy, I always enjoy hearing people play my works. Mm. That to me is the best part. Actually, the stuff I, I, I cringe at listening the most is stuff that's all me. I hate listening to that. I, I'm very self-critical. You know, existence is pain. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I think it's like, you know, it's it, to give kind of a, a general analogy, it's like, you know how a lot of people don't like looking at themselves in photos? Mm. It's a bit yeah. like that. There's just sort of a built-in insecurity yeah. to it. Um, but when I have players, hear players play my work, it allows me, one, it allows me to appreciate how good they are and it allows me to let go a little bit of it and that that's why i think i especially like writing concert music too and why i really enjoy well i like writing music you know for synth things or music that's not doesn't have live recorded elements i really love the idea of people taking something and doing what they want with it so in the, in that sense i would say overall no i'm very critical uh, i think i struggle with enjoying my own writing i actually don't like to watch films that i've scored because mm, of that yeah. yeah actually on the contrary i actually do find myself enjoying the process of reflecting upon my works like i don't tend to like at this point i don't tend to cringe at my music as much as i used to because i think you know having spent a few years you know writing music and learning about the process of composing it's got me to a certain level of I would say healthy confidence in, you know, listening and presenting my music. I think the point in which I start to dislike my pieces are either first when I get bored of them or when projects involve um, a very long, arduous and tiring process or um, if I had spent some time away from it 
grown just a little bit and then I'm looking back at the works that I've written Absolutely. in so true. You know, so. it's funny. I, I say I, I feel so negatively about my own works, but I do think there is a difference between me just having a natural cringing of anything I write, which has nothing to do with the quality of it. And there's some stuff where it's not just that I cringe at it. It's that, oh, this isn't good or this isn't this is outdated where I cut it from my reel or something like that. Yeah. Because yep, yep. I think even within my insecurity, I still can perceive quality versus things that aren't quality. Yeah, definitely. Yep. And I think if anything, like, you know, self-criticism is healthy in a way. Yeah. But not too much. It's Yeah, definitely not to the point where it sort of, you know, it, it hampers your yeah. compositional output. But if it's, you know, if it's self-reflection and if you are able to identify aspects of the music which you think can be improved on and if you do actually improve them yeah. on yeah. them in subsequent pieces. That's true. That definitely helps. I don't see why. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Jenny? Oh, yeah, of course I do cringe on my music. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, okay, what about, <laughs> what about, what ones, about yes. the first part of the question? <laughs> what was um, the first part How again? do you judge if a work is finished? That's wow, a, that's a good question. I, a... I can answer that because I'm going through that right. I, oh, I, know I, you go, I go through that in everything I ever write. It's like one of the things at the foremost of my mind is when can I? Because I'm one of those people that I need the deadline because I will tweak things until the end of time if I can't, yeah. which is for sure. Which to me is a huge compositional weakness because it, it shows I don't have conviction in a certain respect. But I I think. To me, a work, what I realized with me is a work is finished when I have to kind of force any changes to it. Mm. When, or here's the other one. A work is finished, like you said, when I'm tired of working on it. Yeah. yeah. And that might even mean that I don't show it because if I don't, if I'm tired of working on something and I'm not proud of it, then it'll, then it might be, I just scrap that. But sometimes you're, you work on something and you're actually you're proud of it to a certain respect and you're just done working on it. And sometimes that can be when you leave it because I've spent too much time on pieces and made them worse. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I've and I actually reverted to the original. I think there's a proverb on that um, in Chinese. Go uh, for it. <laughs> it's called Hua Se Tian Zhu, which literally... I know that. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, don't yeah, worry, I, I, don't, I don't speak much Chinese, but I... I, <laughs> I Shock, shockingly, I, I do not know this. It basically... Uh, so it's a, it's a metaphor. Yeah, it's a metaphor. Um, well, so if you translate that literally, it means drawing a snake with four legs. It's like you don't really need to do it. You don't need oh, to yeah, do it's, it's, it's like why, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some, because for me, when I know when the music is end, like, I don't have to do any more work on this when I... I kind of make like a checklist. Do I help the film in the in the music? Is it enough, or is it still empty in some ways? Like, do I need to add more instruments or any texture? And um, and one more thing is, every time I finish, like maybe I finish for the day, I go wait for the next day to continue. I don't like continuing on and on. I mean, I did it multiple times. It ended up me just changing again and again, and I was never happy with it. It's, it's really good to actually take a rest and review it or reflect on it the next day, because I'm pretty sure everybody's going to be tired by then. Of course. Um, I absolutely feel the same as well. I, yeah. I think it's harder <laughs> with, with concert music stuff, be, like especially stuff you work on in extended periods of time versus yeah. film music, you at least have deadlines. Yeah, yeah. Or, or even concert Actually, music do, with yeah, with you deadlines, have deadlines, yeah. Deadlines. But if, but have you ever written a piece that's just like 
you're just writing it to eventually have it premiered and you've been writing it for a long time that can be really hard to figure yeah. out when you yeah. I mean to be fair in recent months for me no and I I mean I say that because I love working with deadlines like it I agree me oh, yeah me too no me I haven't too. done anything without a deadline in years I don't think no yeah I haven't written anything without a deadline in a while apart um, from say the album that I'm working on right now but yeah. you know even with the album you can give yourself is, a deadline uh, yeah I do have a schedule that's planned out because of the people that I'm collaborating with so like one of the things that is both kind of the bane of film composers existence and also the thing that keeps them going is like when the recording deadline is because i mean it can be super stressful counting down the days to if you're doing a recording when that deadline is but it absolutely you have to structure yourself and you have to finish things by that time yeah absolutely and in that sense it could i almost think one of the things that it's weird i like about film music is that in a sense it is a, a bit disposable in that you just have to finish things and be done with it and then move on. And I think that can be really valuable, especially if you're insecure with yourself because it just forces you to write a lot of music. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also like the whole process of scoring a film is incredibly well structured. Like, you know, you start, I mean, the project effectively starts at the spotting session Mm -hmm. and it ends um, at the final dub. And everything along the way is sort of checkpoints. You've got like, you know, the first pass, second pass, the scoring session, the mixing. So it's all sort of, you know, it's it's very much stepwise. And I don't know, it just like the whole process. Just stepwise music terms. I think we've had some really interesting conversations. Um, it was insightful. Today. Yeah, very you. insightful. I think we've gone quite deep, actually, um, which may be interesting for some of the viewers um, out there who are non-musicians or non-composers. It really gives um, people the opportunity to look into the minds of um, two... Three. Very talented composers plus one. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll plus say one. the same, but the, the one not talented one is actually me. <laughs> that not, I can not, agree, not, that not, I agree. Not these two. <laughs> Thanks, Julie. <laughs> sure. I think it's about good time for us to sort of, you know, get a coffee, listen to some Bubble music. Bubble tea. Yeah. Um, thanks so much to everyone who's uh, tuning in and who's listening to us. We will see you in the next one. And we wish you all the best. Yeah. See you.